This podcast is sponsored by Regatta Outdoors. It's a glorious spring day and you're heading out on a walk. What do you bring with you? A paper map? Plenty of snacks? Well, of course they're important, but any seasoned hiker will tell you that footwear is the first thing to consider. Whether you prefer relaxed rambles or challenging summits, comfortable and reliable shoes are essential. Regatta has waterproof and breathable footwear for the whole family, for every outdoor occasion. Discover the range in stores nationwide and at regatta.com. Hello and a warm welcome to our many listeners around the world to the BBC Country Farm magazine podcast, or the podcast as it's become known. It's your chance to come with us on adventures into the great British outdoors and escape tedious stuff like commuting, work, bad weather, television. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the editor of the magazine. Now it's a big subject for debate this week. Can our national parks really protect our landscapes and our wildlife while also supporting the people who work within them and the millions of us who visit these special places. To help answer these questions, I spoke to Corinne Plakino, Chief Executive for the Campaign for National Parks, which is an organisation devoted to improving our most famous protected areas. Fantastic. Well, I'm here with Corinne Plakino, um, and you work for the Campaign for National Parks. What's your role there? I'm the Chief Executive at Campaign for National Parks, and I joined earlier this year, and it's been a fantastic run so far. So tell me a little bit about what the campaign does. Obviously, chief exec means you're at the very top. But what what do you what does your organisation seek to do? Well, our origins actually date back to before the Second World War, when the national parks had not yet been created, and we were very much part of the movement at that time to encourage politicians and the government of the day to create the national parks. And once they were, we then focused our attention on ensuring that they were protected and promoted in the way that was originally intended by the founders. And that's where we've focused our attention ever since. And we also work very, very closely with the individual national park societies that are local charitable bodies that seek to achieve very similar objectives to us, but in each one of the individual national parks. I see. They're, they're like your uh, eyes and ears on the ground for each Absolutely national park. Absolutely right. And and it's, it's fascinating to have them there because um, there is so much going on and there are such incredible variations between the national parks, which um, is not always immediately obvious when you start. So um, it'd be great to hear a bit more about you, but just what you just talked about being this, this watchdog for national parks. Um, and I think that probably that's the thing we should tackle first is um, the whole raise and detra for the campaign for national parks is to to ensure that they deliver f- following their, their sort of original remit. Uh, it's not the case that they're doing that well, though. I, the Glover Report, which is this famous report by Julian Glover, has been produced recently, and, and we were going to talk about that. It's obviously pointed out some some challenges facing national parks but also some solutions um could you outline perhaps some of the some of the challenges and what you think national parks aren't doing particularly well at the moment yeah of course i think the first thing to say is that the world has changed hugely since 1949 when the national parks and access to the countryside act was passed Um, If you think how um, our lifestyles have changed, the number of cars that we own, the way that we travel, the way that we consume, um, it really is a completely different world. So a lot of the original structures that were set up in 1949 
um, and have had some variation since, but clearly things have moved on. And I think it's really important to bear that in mind when we look at how the national park authorities that were created to essentially oversee delivery of this vision, it's important to consider the challenges that they've got um, in, in the world of 2019-2020. Another really important thing to bear in mind is, is that they have a very specific remit. They don't have complete control over what goes on in the national parks. And indeed, a really interesting thing that, that often isn't realised is that the national park authorities don't own the land in the national parks. There are one or two little exceptions where um, individual park authorities have bought up little pockets of land. But broadly speaking, the land is owned by private individuals by commercial companies, by businesses, by householders. And so it's a much more sort of complex operation than you might think in terms of delivering the original objectives. But you're right. We certainly believe at Campaign for National Parks that more needs to be done in the key areas of protecting and improving the diversity of wildlife and natural habitats. There is a lot of evidence that shows in common with the rest of the countryside, but in the national parks too, things are not as they should be and nature has declined there to an extent that is not acceptable. We need really to think about the role that the national parks play in terms of addressing climate change, an ever-increasing issue, of course, for everyone, and one where we think there needs to be a really focused and ambitious approach. And also in terms of encouraging all sorts of different parts of the community into the national park so that they know they can access them and enjoy them. And again, there's a real body of work to do there. But this is complicated and there's no doubt that um, there needs to be a strong political will from the new government to put the measures in place and the resources in place to enable all that to happen. But there's lots that you've said there, which would be good to unpick. Maybe that last point, um, and then I'd like to come back to about the landowning element and then some of those individual elements that you think or challenges that you think uh, more needs to be done on. But um, on the latter thing, I, on, you know, we look at national parks. Uh, I look at it from a listener's perspective. These are the places I, I live in one, Brecon Beacons National Park. Um, they are... Uh, they are. There are. This is, we, we assume that the jewels in the crown. They're perfectly protected. They're beautiful. Um, and you're saying, and this, the Glover report saying there are lots of uh, problems there, or well, not problems, but th- challenges that need to be overcome, and particularly biodiversity. But those other things you mentioned. Um, is the government doing enough? Has the government been doing enough? Gen- have governments the last twenty, thirty years? I think, on balance, we would probably say no. Um, otherwise we wouldn't be having the discussion that we're having now. Yeah, sure. (laughs) And and forgive me, I don't mean to be facetious when I say that, but but, um, I think the answer is no. And and that's why I think Glover is so important. Um, He's been extremely ambitious in the report. Um, There are an awful lot of interlocking parts in there, but we at Campaign for National Parks see this as a real moment to start to address some of those challenges and to put the measures in place that will ensure that the national parks deliver what was originally envisaged and which I think um, people want to deliver as well. Um, They see the opportunities and they want to be able to make those changes. One thing I would say, though, as you rightly say, we're recording this just before the election. What's been really encouraging is to see how many of the political parties have actually mentioned the national parks in their manifestos and have made um, positive noises or direct commitments both about implementing Glover and about increasing the protections for the national parks um, and also looking at new types of protected area uh, 
which would also help to look after different pieces of, of the countryside. So we think we're starting from a positive place and we need to keep that going. Um, and without wanting to sound cynical, it, it, it sounds like it's a vote winner then, um, or the, the fact they're actually starting to address some of, address some of these things. Um, we hope so. Yeah. One issue that I hear locally in the Brecon Beacons is funding. Um, where does that, where, where is that, uh, where are the pinch points? What's been happening there? Is it, are, are, has funding been cut by the government or have they just not increased it with inflation or is there a sort of, do you think it's just been, that they've been rather neglected, the national parks? I think it's probably a combination of all of those things, actually. Um, certainly we do know if we take, for example, the national parks in England as a starting point, of which there are 10, um, their budgets have been broadly flat for the last four years. There, there has been an increase over time from about 46 to about 48, 49 million. But that's for 10 national parks over a period of four years. Um, and there have certainly been attempts to um, cut budgets, and we've been very active in campaigning for them to be maintained. But given the impact of things such as inflation over that time, we're still talking um, about uh, a relatively um, limited budget for 10 very significant areas of England um, with all the challenges that we've discussed. I think, though, I would just also add one other point, which is although money is an important part of this story, it's not the only part of the story. And I think it's also about um, being ambitious and visionary um, and creating other structures, both um, within the National Park Authorities and for the other organisations that work with them in order to ensure that that, that, that vision can be achieved. So what would those structures be? Are these part of the recommendations of Glover or is it something that the campaign for national parks would like to see? Yeah, well, um, we were delighted that um, Julian Glover's report actually picked up quite a number of the recommendations that we made in our own submission um, to to his uh, review process. Um, but just to give you one or two examples, um, national park authorities currently are required to produce a management plan every five years, and they do that in partnership with other organisations and interests within the national park. And that sends out a series of ambitions for the coming five years and a plan of action as to how they're going to be achieved. One of the things that Glover recommends, which we are very pleased about, is he thinks that those management plans should essentially have more teeth um, and that they should also be taking a much more strategic view about things like climate change mitigation, um, about things like transport um, and should really be um, be strengthened in terms of, of what they can achieve and expect within their areas. So we're very keen to see that um, happen. Um, another example of something that Gava recommends, which again we called for, is, as I said, national park authorities don't operate in a vacuum. And there are lots of other public bodies, local councils being just one example, who operate in and around the parks, um, and therefore their decisions also have an influence on what happens there. And one of the things that Glover has recommended is that those public bodies should be required to have much, much more regard for what the national parks are trying to achieve. In other words, to try and ensure that organisations are pulling in the same direction. Okay. And again, we yes. really support that. So, so it's sort of giving the National Park Authority more clout, is that the idea that it can have more power to actually make decisions? Because you said earlier that um, most national parks, the land is privately owned or owned by other organisations. 
how does that compare with, say, American national parks or national parks within the EU, the rest of the EU? Well, if we take America as a case in point, and of course, the very first national parks were established in the United States, um, their land is state owned. So it completely changes the way things operate in terms of setting objectives and then actually delivering them. Um, and around the world, we see different combinations of public and private ownership. But we are really in, in stark contrast to the United States in the way that we operate here. And as I say, that I think has been one of the challenges um, as the national parks have, authorities have sought to um, manage and deliver and develop the national parks over the years since their creation. So we have this issue where we have a multitude of landowners, some of whom who own and farm or develop or whatever, or have some sort of business, or maybe just live in particularly sensitive areas. How can you convince those people who perhaps don't share the same objectives? You know, they've got to live, survive, find a living um, from the land or from their property. How do you convince them to join this common purpose? Well, I suppose it's complex. Um, and the National Park Authorities are already engaged on a continual basis of talking to and working with all sorts of different organisations within their areas. And they also often do that with the support of um, NGOs and campaigning and conservation bodies such as our own. But there's another important element to this. Again, I said it was complex, and I'm just about to add in another, another yeah. complexity. Yeah is what's going on in terms of national policy. And a really good example of that is agricultural um, policy and agricultural payments, which, as you know, um, are paid to farmers and landowners um, with respect to the different things that they do on their farms. Um, our agricultural policy in the UK has been largely shaped by the common agricultural policy, which is overseen by the European Union since we joined the EU in the 1970s. But of course, that means, therefore, that the UK governments have the opportunity to completely review the way that they shape and administer agricultural policy and payments. And that work has been underway now for about the last 18 months in the different nations of the United Kingdom. And one of the things, again, if we just take England as an example, but Wales is also having similar thoughts, is to completely change the way that farmers are rewarded for the way that they farm to encourage them to take much, much more sustainable measures. Now, that work is still very, very much in progress, and there's a lot of detail to be worked out. But you can see that if you had a an agricultural policy and a payment structure that encouraged landowners to be much more sustainable in the way that they farmed, that would then start to link up with some of the other things that the national park authorities are trying to achieve. And actually, one of the things that we've called for is that national park authorities should actually have a much more active role in the administration and development of those payment schemes within their own areas in the national parks so that there's much more coordination and much more joining up. But again, it's another example of where a national policy impacts on what happens in the individual parks, but the national park authorities at the moment have very little influence over how that works on the ground. How do you think farmers will take that? Because it's farmers who will be particularly impacted. Um, and I say this because... Um, the rewilding debate, which we've covered on podcasts and in magazine, has become quite, it's become so sort of heated where farmers and now very, many farmers, not all, uh, suspicious of rewilding and think that it 
both culturally and economically uh, alienates them from the land and from the processes. Uh, could this, I, I fear that there's a danger that um, farming community might sort of see this as, as, as a threat. Can you reassure them that uh, it wouldn't be? Well, I think the answer to that is, again, there are, there are many, many different elements and sort of subsets to it. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that the farming community actually as a community is hugely diverse. Yes. Both yeah. in terms of attitudes and also in terms of um, beliefs and also farming practice on the ground. So to think of the farming community as one single block is, is probably um, uh, a, a bit one-dimensional. Well, although one sometimes that's often how they are portrayed by their own farming unions they're sort of united farmers say this farmers say that uh and it's reported in the press along those ways you know I, I i agree with you i think there's a whole diversity of farmers out there but i think sometimes their collective voice pieces can be uh, can make it seem as if they are a homogenous united group I think that's very fair. Um, and there's all sorts of interesting new groups emerging that are trying to communicate um, different farmer opinions. So a good example is the Nature Friendly Farming Network, um, which was established a few years ago to bring together farmers who want to farm in a more sustainable way and to share information um, and to get involved in debates about it. Um, you may be aware that the NFU itself has made some commitments about trying to ensure that farming is um, carbon neutral. Um, I think they've set a goal of either 2040 or 2050. Um, but again, I think the community is starting to think differently. However, you're quite right to say that all of this represents enormous change on the ground and that there clearly are going to be very different sorts of discussions going on in individual national parks, depending on the nature of the particular farmers that are there, their history and the type of farming that they do. Um, but there is, I think, a general direction of travel going on, both in terms of national um, policy and also the responses of different organisations, which accepts that we are going to have to farm in a more environmentally sympathetic way, given the challenges that we're facing, both in terms of, of nature recovery and also in terms of climate change. But there will clearly be a period of years where, um, where we need to make the transition. I've got a stat here, which is England's 10 national parks attract more than 94 million visitors a year from at home and abroad. Um, if Glover's impl uh, recommendations are implemented, um, let's be hopeful, um, what can those visitors expect to see in the national parks? Will they notice change? Over time, I believe they will. Um, clearly, if we're thinking about rebuilding um, biodiversity, rebuilding ecosystems, changing the way that landscapes are farmed, um, that's going to take time. Um, and so it will be uh, a period of years, I think, before visitors are conscious of change. Um, and what I think would be exciting would be to encourage visitors to get more involved in helping to track that change. And there are a number of, of citizen science projects run by all manner of different organisations, both the NPAs themselves, but also individual charitable bodies that seek to get people involved in helping to monitor and track that change, which is immensely exciting and also gathers really important data about what's going on. Another change that we would also very, very much want to see is greater diversity in the people visiting 
protecting the national parks. That's something that we have campaigned on. We've done some very direct project work ourselves at Campaign for National Parks. We conducted something called the Mosaic Project a few years ago, which looked at trying to get um, different um, black and minority ethnic groups into the national parks and also younger people from different socio-economic backgrounds into the parks. And we believe, as does Julian Glover, that that's hugely important so that people know that these remarkable and awe-inspiring landscapes are available for everyone and that everyone can benefit from them, both for recreational purposes, but also thinking about things like health and well-being as well, mm. um, which, of course, is receiving a lot more um, time now in 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 um in both in media but also in public conversation more generally and there is evidence available which shows that doing exercise outside in green spaces is actually more beneficial than just doing exercise for example in the gym that there's something profound that happens yeah i completely outside. agree with that yeah. And you feel the wind or see the sun and, and see the landscape around you. So for all sorts of reasons, we would hope to see change there too. Yeah, well, that's a sort of underpinning uh, force behind the creation of the magazine as well is, is exactly that. Um, the health, the health and, and mental health gains from being outside. Um, you mentioned black, Asian, minority ethnicities. Why is it at the moment that those groups aren't visiting national parks, do you think? I think there are lots of reasons for it. And I suspect as well that we don't yet fully understand it. Um, this is an area where I think more research is required. But I think it's um, a lack of awareness. It's um, a lack of confidence. Um, sometimes it's very practical things like lack of easy transport um, to get to the national parks. And that's another area where we as an organisation have been very active. And many of these challenges also apply to um, different socioeconomic groups as well. So it, it's not just an issue for um, black and minority ethnic groups. It can go beyond that. Um, so I think we need to do more work to understand and also make sure that we learn from the projects that we have undertaken and critically talk to those communities about what it is that, that presents them with barriers. Um, rather than making assumptions, we need to talk and listen to what they're telling us. Well, great. And so uh, sort of encouraging uh, are these mainly urban populations that you're talking about or is it? Largely, yes. Largely, though, not exclusively. Yeah. OK. Well, um a bit about you actually would be good good to know. I mean, how do you how does one get to become chief exec of Campaign for National Parks? What's your background? Are you a um, naturey person? Well, I am in my personal life, but um, I'm I'm been involved in a number of um organisations really ever since I was young that have been involved in the conservation of wildlife or beautiful places, and it's something that I've always found um very inspiring. Um, but in my professional life, I've worked in the commercial sector, I've worked in the charitable sector, um, I've worked in communications and marketing and public policy development, and also raising income. Um, but I made a decision about three, four years ago that I wanted to combine the personal and the professional. So I went back to university um, to study for a master's degree in environmental issues. Um, and when I came out the other side, I was very fortunate to be offered the opportunity at Campaign for National Parks. And it's such a pleasure to be able to work on these issues every day when I come to work. 
Um, there is just so much going on in the national parks. They're so diverse. There are so many things, things that are good. And I think it's really important to stress that as well. So much innovative work going on, both on wildlife and landscape, but also on access to, um, but also some really, really critical challenges. And I feel really privileged to have the chance to try and contribute to solving some of them in a small way. Well, great. I mean, you talked about um, health, mental health and the joy of being outside. Where, where do you like to go? Where's, where's your sort of local patch or where do you sort of, uh, when you really need to wind down? What, yeah. what part well, of the world? That's a really interesting question, and it depends very much on where I am. As you can imagine, I'm I'm embarking on a grand tour of the national parks at the moment. Oh, lucky you! That sounds great. <laughs> well, it is great. There, um, so many of them I knew before I took the role on, but but of course now I can go back and perhaps look at them from a different perspective, which is which is great. And and I have to say, I don't think, as someone who works for Campaign for National Parks, I'm allowed to have a favourite. Yeah, that's annoying. But anyway. So, well, <laughs> and draw one out of me but um I mean I think the broads is a remarkable piece of landscape um very much shaped by by the human hand of course um over many centuries but an incredible um an almost slightly mystical ethereal landscape there with what I remember about the broads is the extraordinary color of the sky um and often very very pink sunsets which are quite remarkable and then going over you mentioned the Brecon Beacons um, another national park that I love is the Pembrokeshire coast Uh, to walk along the coast um, and to look out to the sea and yet to be on this remarkable expanse of land is is truly inspiring and then you have something like the South Downs completely different again Um, one of the newest national parks of course it was only established a few years ago Um, and and in one without question at one level in one of the busiest parts of the country, the southeast of England, and yet again these incredible pockets of of tranquility and beauty, um, and that's what's so remarkable in many ways about the United Kingdom. We are a small country, and yet we have landscapes that, to me, just take my breath away. They're so beautiful and they're so precious, and we must look after them. And and coming back to where we started this conversation, that the Glover Review is, I think, a real opportunity for us to reset the dial and say, how do we want these landscapes to look for future generations? And how do we seize the moment to do that? Um, Because they are exceptional. And once we've lost them, they're gone forever. That's a wonderful way to end. However, I do have one more question, which is you mentioned Norfolk, the Norfolk Broads. Now, you probably know what I'm going to ask you here. (laughs) so we featured Norfolk Broads as a national park in Country Farm magazine, and I've never had so many complaints from people saying it's not a national park. Could you clear this one up categorically yes. once and for all? Is the Norfolk Broads a national park? Funnily enough, I was down in the Broads um, just a couple of weeks ago, actually, and we were talking about this. Technically, technically speaking, the Norfolk Broads are not a national park in the way that the other national parks are. And the reason that I say that is because they were created by a slightly different piece of legislation, because what they have there, of course, is all the waterways. And so the national, um, the authority in the Broads has responsibility for navigation. So it has a a special set of duties that do not apply to the other national parks that do not have these waterways. And because also the waterways are very intrinsically linked with recreation, it means that some of the um, requirements of the authority in the broads are slightly different in terms of the balance between recreation and conservation. 
But, and now I'm going to give myself an out clause, they still consider themselves to be part of the National Park family. Um, And so work very closely with the other national parks and all sorts of things. And we, when we talk about what we do at Campaign for National Parks, we include the broads. So it's a sort of yes. (laughs) It's it's a yes, but. It's a a yes. In the broadest sense, yes. But but if one is being technical and precise, it is different because they have, as I say, slightly different responsibilities and they're governed by slightly different pieces of legislation. But they they consider themselves to be part of the extended family. And they call themselves a national park, but it's just a different different setup. I like like the way you said in the broadest sense, quite. all round but but if one is being very technical they are slightly different so in the magazine we can call it a national park and defend it <laughs> i may i may not include this in the final I think, no no i think you probably can it, it's an interesting one and of course um if you look at um the national parks uh official website you know the broads is listed. Yes, that's that's what we that was our defence. Yeah, and, 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 and you know, and and you to be quite frank with you, you are slightly dancing on the head of a pin. But yeah. for example, if um the new government takes forward Glover, and, and we will be campaigning very hard to make sure it does, when if there is new legislation introduced in order to help implement some of the bits of Glover, and we would expect there would have to be, they will have to do some special drafting around the broads which is an example of where technically they are different. So, you know, from a, from a legal point of view, you can't just treat everybody exactly the same. No, but exactly. But yeah. slight level of detail that most of your readers, apart from those who are local to the broads, wouldn't be too concerned about. Yeah, OK. Listen, I, have, I actually do have one more question and then we'll, we'll wrap sure. it up. But um, so one thing that uh, readers and listeners will be particularly interested in there were some suggestions, and I've seen lots of literature around for new national parks. Could you suggest the most uh, likely places that may receive national park status in the UK? I feel you're asking me to choose a favourite child. Um, well, there are a number of places that have been campaigning for a long time um, and which are specifically mentioned in the Glover Review. So those include the Cotswolds, um, the Chilterns. Um, there's also um, been a lot of work done in Dorset. Um, there is a process, um, which a technical process, which occurs when an area um, seeks to be designated as a national park. Um, and that involves a very detailed assessment, which is done by a government body, Natural England. And then that's followed by a detailed process of consultation with local people and organisations who have an interest. So there are a number of stages that have to be um, followed before a final decision can be made by government. Um, but those are the ones at the moment that are, that are being talked about. And of course, all of them, exceptional landscapes and, and an exceptional um, cultural um, uh, heritage as well, which explains how those landscapes have, have resulted in the way that they have. Um, all of them really beautiful parts of the country. Um, but yes, we will have to see how the government responds to Glover you don't really cover Scotland, do you, Campaign for National Parks? We don't campaign for National Parks, no, but there are other organisations that do similar work to us up there. We cover England and Wales. And I think there's there's plans for potentially a Borders National Park as well, yeah. which I've seen. I've, I've just been sent some very nicely published literature about it. But, um, yeah, so there, there's obviously plans for, for more of these. Afoot. Well, look, thanks so much, Corinne. Um, really interesting. All power to your bow and hope that um, we can talk again when some of these things have been implemented. 
We look forward to that very much. And um, yes, we're crossing our fingers and we're going to be campaigning hard now over the coming months um, to ensure that, that that vision and that momentum is not lost. We think it's really critical that it continues. Terrific. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. And that's where we left it. We all await to see how the new government will implement the Glover Report. And we'll keep an eye on how things evolve within the pages of Country Farm magazine and in these podcasts. So if you want to find out more about the work the Campaign for National Parks does, visit their website, www.cnp.org.uk. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, or not, do send us some feedback. The email address is editor at countryfile.com. And we'd love it if you could leave some reviews on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or whatever podcast provider you use. You've been listening to the BBC Country Farm magazine podcast, produced in Bristol by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. Thank you so much for listening, and don't forget to join us next time for another adventure in the great British countryside. Whether it's gloriously sunny or a spring downpour, you can always get outdoors with regatta. So what are you waiting for? Find a route, grab your walking shoes and start exploring. Regatta Great Outdoors offers all types of performance footwear, from technical hiking boots for regular ramblers to durable walking shoes for the whole family. With waterproof and breathable qualities, shock-absorbing comfort and superior grip, Regatta footwear is designed to withstand whatever challenges Mother Nature throws your way. Discover the range in stores nationwide and at regatta.com.